Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Co-op this wonderful, beautiful Thursday morning in Washington, D.C. Sun's up, a little cloudy, but extremely green and blue. Wonderful, wonderful day. And we have Mr. Zen Trimholm with us this morning. He's Director of Employee Ownership, Cities and Policies at Democracy at Work Institute. Good morning, Zen. Good morning, Vernon. Hey, how are you this day? I'm all right. It's uh, it's a little gray in Portland, Oregon. I'm waiting for some sunshine to finally reach us. Um, I've learned that Portland has a June gloom uh, the, uh, season that uh, gets difficult when I see everyone else having such a beautiful day. But I think it's going to be nice. I'm glad that we're uh, speaking today. Thank you for being on, particularly your three hours earlier. So you had to be on 730. So thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah. So you said you've learned that Portland is gloom. So you're not from Portland. Where are you from? That's, yeah, that's right. I'm from, um, I was born in Japan, but I grew up in San Francisco. And um, I then lived in uh, Berkeley, the East Bay, um, for a number of years before moving uh, to Portland, Oregon. Um, me and my partner fell in love with the city and wanted to put down roots in a place where we could afford it. So okay. <laughs> we had to move. Okay. Uh, but uh, we've got strong community and a lot of family in the Bay Area still. Okay, so you and your partner decided to go somewhere you could pay rent, okay, or afford <laughs> yeah. housing. Uh, That's okay. right. Okay, got it. And Portland's a little bit cheaper than San Francisco and Berkeley. Mm-hmm, got to try to keep it that way. Okay. Uh, what were you doing in uh, Berkeley? Well, I, uh, I, uh, well, I, I went to UC Berkeley for a couple of years um, and uh, started working um, mostly in the kind of the climate justice, fossil fuel divestment space for a couple of years. And so I was kind of living with the people I was organizing with uh, for a bit, and um, and then I transitioned work to be to working at Democracy Work Institute to to grow cooperative ecosystems. And um, yeah, continued to live in Berkeley with with friends and, uh, and met my partner, and it was a lovely, lovely time. I uh, I learned a lot and um, was able to do you know, meet some of the great folks who are doing the the type of work that I do, you know, in the Bay Area. So that's uh, I, I miss it, but I, I like to go back whenever I can. Okay, so UC Berkeley has a reputation for co-ops, uh, even when I was in school and. The- mm-hmm. 60s uh, in college, they they seemed to be, they would have the sit-ins and they were very active in Berkeley, always seem like always have been. But did you learn about co-ops at Berkeley? Uh, you know, <laughs> a little yes and no. Um, I learned about cooperatives actually when I was at the uh, City College of San Francisco. Um, I was, you know, studying environmental science. I was just doing, you know, political stuff. I was getting involved in more organizing and sustainability spaces. And I couldn't... Um, you know, the three pillars of sustainability are the environment, economy, and equity. And I could see the work that I was doing when I was learning about focus on environmental policy, on social equity policy, but I didn't find a really good kind of economic framework um, at the time. You know, I, I came of age during the era of like Al Gore's, you know, change the light bulb, change the world kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it just didn't really, it didn't really click for me. I like not to say that individual choices aren't part of how we, uh, we create a better world, but to leave it at that misses the opportunity to use our collective power, right, to actually ch- create change at a systematic level, at a you know, yeah, systemic level. And I was looking for that, and uh, but I wasn't, I, I didn't, I just didn't have a thing that I could really understand as kind of the engine to move in that direction. And then I heard about cooperatives, particularly worker-owned businesses, and it, it like it clicked. It you know, clicked. I. Uh, it really did. You know, I, I kind of learned it right after, right during the Great Recession. No, I guess. Our, a last great recession um, back in 2009. 
uh, when my mom lost her job um, and therefore lost our health, you know, we lost health insurance and that was just a difficult time. And I was looking for, you know, I was just thinking about all that in the context of what are we, what are we building towards as a future and learn about cooperatives as a way for people to own their own, like uh, their own businesses, make decisions, right, on how to tighten their belt, belt of course, when, th- when times are tough, but also how to share um, in the reward of, of owning the business together. And that just made a heck of a lot of sense to me. And it clicked. Uh, and then I asked myself, why aren't there more of them? Mm-hmm. And that's been, a, that's been a question I've been asking myself and I've been working on for <laughs> the better part of the last seven years at Democracy Work Institute and obviously been thinking about that. So I, I went to UC Berkeley with the intention to learn more about worker ownership. And there were no classes on worker-owned businesses. There had been uh, a course that actually my, my now colleague, uh, Rebecca Bowen, had co-taught at the university, but you know, funding kind of dried up and the class you know, disappeared by the time I got to UC Berkeley. So I'm, I'm really um, surprised at that because I would have thought that UC Berkeley would have had a whole host of classes in cooperation. Oh, uh, me too. <laughs> but <laughs> I, <laughs> I was able to, to write my own major, which was quite helpful. And basically saying, well, there's uh, many ways one can learn about the thing you want to learn without actually taking the specific class. So I took a lot of classes and frameworks for thinking about power and thinking about um, about how we move new ideas into, into into kind of dominant frameworks for for how people see progress happening. And so it was political ecology. It was learning about the history of urban development. It was learning about business development, small business development. And where I learned about cooperatives was actually in the in a class on, on, on global poverty as a, as a means by which people in other countries can use the form to be able to access work, scale their ability to, you know, produce goods, distribute those goods. And it was always in that context, like, oh, this is a thing that other people in other countries can use in a global poverty co- context. So I'm like, <laughs> why aren't we looking around? How, why aren't we talking about cooperatives as one of the tools in the U.S. can address our problems? Right, exactly, in the U.S. And, um, and my teacher, you know, credit to him in this class, understood that. That wasn't what his class was about, but he wanted to, he really wanted to lift that up and, and encourage me to keep learning and, and support that work. And, and I got most of my practice really um, as, a, as a volunteer uh, member of the Berkeley Student Food Collective. That uh, was just, I, I think, just a prime example of how students came together to meet their needs. So let me, before you go on to the Food yeah, Collective, please. I'm back to the global poverty. I wanted to ask mm-hmm. you a question because you said where people can, around the world, produce the goods and distribute the goods but don't they also own the goods the product that's right yeah that's right and the profit exactly um i don't think those were the 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 key things that this class was looking to talk about i think that was a part of it but it was um for them the question always was what's the type of business model that business formed that a lot of people who have very limited resources and capital to create businesses because in, I think, the dominant context, it's, well, big companies can do this and because big companies have access to incredible amounts of financing. And if you're privately owned and become publicly owned, I mean, you have so much access to dollars to, to, to grow the business. And so that was the kind of the context of, of business development. So the class was about kind of changing that and rethinking, well, wait a minute, when, you, when, there's very, when you're working with a community that doesn't have a lot of resources, what are some of the vehicles that they could use to, to, to yeah. And we to find that in, we yeah. find that I'm now calling them under resourced communities. Uh, mm-hmm. A gentleman by the name of John Hoseclaw gave me that term as opposed mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, a more negative term. Uh, yeah. So oh, yeah. under resourced communities in the U.S., black, brown, indigenous people, some Asian community. Most most people think of Asians as very, very smart into computers and make a lot of money. But there's a tremendous amount of Asian folks in the U.S. that are poor also. So anybody, and, and there's more poor white people in the U.S. than black and brown people put together. But most people don't think that way. They think that it's poor people are black and brown and indigenous. So poverty yeah. doesn't, it doesn't care what your race is. <laughs> That's what I've come to. It, just, it doesn't care. Yeah, I mean, we can get into it, but I think um, that there's, there's a reason why. Poverty is racialized, or, or considered to be racialized, and I think it, it. I think in many ways there's a divide and conquer strategy when it comes to how we, you know, how we, I guess, 
continue to to struggle to find like a, a common agenda to address the, the the common conditions that many many people in this country face around lack of resources, the inability to put food on the table, the inability to you know uh, save a little money, move to not just live by uh, paycheck to paycheck, and people use kind of racial divisions as a way to distinguish like one person's conditions from another and say, well, your condition is created by those people or whatever. It's the othering, right? It's a, trying to find uh, some external, you know, some, some scapegoat, right? For, for really what we're talking, what we're really talking about here, which is the fact that people are intentionally under-resourced. Money and resources are intentionally concentrated in the hands of very few. Um, and so it's, it's helpful, right? To say that, oh, well, these situations are caused by these other groups of people instead of, you know, uh, is a, is a, is a product of how our economy is traditionally set up to, to run. So when I grew up in Bluefield, West Virginia, um, we had terms, economic terms, uh, very, very, you know, like doctoral terms. There was more month than money. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yeah. More. You can study that, mm -hmm. uh, Borrowing from Peter to pay Paul, okay. And and I heard and I heard you say in 2009 your mom lost her job. I remember my father who worked on the railroad lost his job. Whenever the economy went down, lose job or don't work, don't get much work because it was a call in kind of system. And my mother went back to school and graduated when I was 13 and started teaching, but they didn't make any money. And so it was always this whole mechanism of born from Peter to pay Paul. Now, like you said, r racialized conditions and divide and conquer. But it's like also not only telling poor whites that blacks are taking the jobs or immigrants are coming in taking the jobs or somebody is taking the jobs. But it's also, I have it that it's the wealthy, whatever that is, the 1% or 5% of the very wealthy are creating these scenarios. Okay, and I also believe I don't have any facts. Maybe you've studied it, but I believe that they want to keep poor people poor because there's always somebody to fill that job. If, if there's unemployment, there's somebody to fill that job for seven bucks an hour. And if we get it to fifteen dollars an hour, they the cost of the baskets of goods would probably they would need thirty bucks an hour because it's going to go up, and we've already seen inflation kick up. That's right. Um, so it's, it seems to be a system, this capitalistic system, uh, and, and tax system so the rich can keep more and the poor gets less mm. and less. Yep. And it's designed yeah. that way is what I heard you say. I, and that's what I, my belief system is too. Yeah. I think you measure in many different ways. Um, I may be misquoting this, but it, there's one fact that you know stands stands out to me is policy link did a did a study and found that four out of every ten economically insecure adults work regularly work regularly they 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 are working they're working enough hours right that should be able to take care of what they need to take care of but they're not able to because um, because wages are depressed right because there's not opportunities for them for workers to own their jobs to actually benefit from the work that they're doing in their businesses. And I think that's why I'm so, so why worker ownership and why it's seeing more development of more worker cooperatives for me is a, is a, is a, is a life school. It's a, certainly a project of, of, of many, many, many people in this country. And it will be a project of many generations to come. But I do this work because I, I fundamentally believe that if more communities own their places of work, and you know, also own other things, right? Own the own the platforms that they use, or the utilities that they use, own the housing that they live in, the land that they work in or farm on. I think our communities will be so much stronger, and we'll have much more ability to weather kind of the ups and downs of our of our you know of, of the economy. And it's gonna t it's gonna take time, right? Just like addressing climate change is taking a lot of time to shift systems. Um, so you can create these like place, you know, these businesses, um, and these maybe these you know, community land trusts. It's going to take time to do this and show proof of concept, but you're going to be addressing people's needs in the moment. And so that's I, I what I find so exciting is if we can create it at a small scale and keep working at, at scaling it larger and unlocking some of the resources to shift 
you know, major dollars, major consciousness to really thinking or like owner community ownership is a fundamental part of how we live and do work. Um, I think we're, we're, we're going to start tack, you know, we're going to start seeing, seeing a, a sea change and I'm looking, I'm looking forward to that. And I'm happy to be part of that work. Okay. Well, I'm doing my part. That's why we have this radio show to tell people about co-ops. I'm glad you're on. We're getting ready to take our first break. And you said that four out of 10 workers, they work regularly and they still don't have enough money to make ends meet. And that seems to be low to me. I would have thought it's six out of 10. Six out <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this might have come out in 2019. 40, or, you know. Oh, now, right. yeah. 47% of Americans in another study would not have $400 if they had an emergency. Right. That was before exactly. the pandemic now. I think right. that might be exactly. in 60 or 70%. But all kinds of stats say that a lot of Americans are poor and worker co-ops can help us get out of it. We're going to be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Your news talk station. Well, information is access to power. You only get the power when you get into action. You only get the power but you need the information in order to get the power. So WOL has been a great, great partner in these almost nine years we've been on air. They've been a great partner because we are giving you information. And the idea is we want you to start your own worker co-ops or the join a worker co-op. Go to U.S. Federation. Look up Google U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops and go there and you can find worker co-ops in your area and go get a job there, learn about them, go buy their products, and let's build a sustainable economy that Zen has been talking about, and we're going to talk more about it in this rest of this hour. It's the kinds of things that you can do, that each of us can do, where we can own the job, we can create jobs, we can own the jobs, we can own the products that we produce, and then if there's a profit, we own it too. Say how it's distributed. We have to say. So then, uh, you talked a little bit about going to school in Berkeley. You're now leaving, living in Portland. You're working for Dowie. Um, and, and, um, what is Dowie and what are you doing in Dowie? <laughs> yeah, great question. Yeah, so Democracy at Work Institute, um, we were founded um, uh, by our sister organization, U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives, which you, uh, you know, which you shared a little earlier. Excellent. Um, to really e expand worker cooperative development to reach um, communities of color, low wage workforces, and uh, recent immigrants. The idea being that um, we're our, our task is to is to help create the next generation of worker owners. And we do that by partnering with community organizations, service providers, capital providers, academics, policymakers, cities around the country to figure out how to use the tool of worker ownership to address a critical economic, community, uh, or workforce development issue. Um, and in my work, so as Director of Employee Ownership Cities and Policy, my job is to, is to help integrate worker ownership as a standard tool in the economic and workforce development toolkits of cities all around, and counties, right, all around the country. Um, you said information, access to information can give you the opportunities to, to really contest for power. And I think about the fact that so many people Majority of people in this country are not aware of worker ownership as as a as a way to create their business as they're thinking about what can they do right to 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 make a livelihood um, are not thinking about it um, or don't 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 know about it um, as a as a business owner who's looking to retire and considering who who can I sell this to you know not not thinking not not thinking there's a model to to sell to employees. And then, you know, for, for, for cities, which I, which I directly work with, right, um, most cities don't know uh, what, how to support employee ownership and what does employee ownership look like and how can it kind of uh, be a strategy that keeps jobs in the communities, creeps the business and its goods or services in the communities. And, you know, 
from a bottom line standpoint, preserve the, tra- the tax base, right, and mm-hmm. and keep a and keep and, uh, and maintain a really strong and vibrant small business economy. And so I have the really pleasant job of of coming with really good information, really good a really good idea that's well proven. Right, working cooperatives we know work. We know that um, you know empl- employee stock ownership plan companies, ESOPs, which is another form of employee ownership, work. There are a lot of great examples. And I get to work with cities um, to understand their communities, what are the issues they want to address, and to help them figure out how to best support um, a worker cooperative strategy as a way to, 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 to help them achieve you know, whatever goals that they have. And so we've worked in places like Atlanta, Georgia, Durham, North Carolina, um, you know, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, and, and, and elsewhere. Um, and what I what I aim to do is really reduce kind of the the runway towards this longer term kind of uh, adoption, right, of of employee ownership as a as a standard tool uh, by kind of creating a community of practice of cities around the country who can see what each other's doing and adapt whatever is working or take the lessons learned and and bring it to their communities so that we're not recreating the wheel every single time we're talking about worker ownership. It's why I've, um, we partnered with the National League of Cities for the past you know, several years to, to run this kind of community practice program with cities um, and to also do webinars for cities from the, the tip of Alaska down to Puerto Rico and why we've developed a, um, together a, a playbook for cities who maybe you know, are, are intrigued by employee ownership as, one of the, as, a, as a new tool in their toolkits but don't know where to start. And we've given them a couple ways that they could do that as a to develop start cooperatives for for workers with barriers to employment, and to use also as a strategy um, to uh, transition businesses owned by um, baby boomers and owners who are looking to retire um, to to their employees um, as a convergence approach as a succession plan approach. So um, that's a little bit of the work that I do as part of uh, Dowie's overall mission. So. I went to usworker.coop, mm-hmm. and that's the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops webpage. And on their first page, um, they they said, um, find a worker cooperative. Mm-hmm. And so I hit that, and it gets, takes you to a map, and you can see all the worker co-ops in the U.S. And it says that this is created by Federation of Worker Co-ops and DOWIE, mm-hmm. Democracy at Work Institute. Mm-hmm. How do you guys go about finding these worker co-ops and putting them in? Are or, or are you all the ones that's creating them? <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's um, it's a lot of reaching out to our to our networks and um, and kind of having um, I, every year we've been doing the census together, um, census of existing businesses that are members of the federation that we go to to collect data. Right, do a census. How are these businesses doing? You know, what um, what benefits are they providing worker worker owners? What are the average um, average wages, average dollars in capital accounts? Really, just to collect data on the health and also the growth, right, of the sector. So, you know, we reach out to businesses that are members of the federation, which is exciting, and membership is growing every single year, which is a testament to the growth of the field, also the importance of having a national organizing. Infrastructure like the U.S. Federation Working Cooperatives, right? To to say that together as a nation, we can we can let people know what our impact is in our communities, and let policymakers know why this form should be supported. But a lot of it's also you know people are are doing work work of development that we know nothing about, and that's why even though I think we in our most recent census we estimate there are about six hundred worker owned businesses, maybe about ten thousand worker owners, um, but. Honestly, the numbers are probably closer to 900 to 1,000. So we, you know, we internally, we, we will hear about a co-op through the grapevine, and then we'll be like, is this, is this a worker-owned business? Like, uh, you know, who can reach out to them? And we, you know, person at the Federation will do that. Um, and then we'll, we'll ask our partners on, you know, in the, who are doing co-op development, who are advocates for cooperatives in the, you know, in communities around the country to, you know, identify businesses that are maybe are new to us when we do the census. So it's a collective process to gather this information, but it is so, so, so important to do so because if people don't know the full scale of impact that worker ownership can have, it invisibilizes, um, I think, how the form is really helping communities make, uh, meet needs 
I'm helping uh, helping people make a livelihood and be able to, to build some assets in the process. So our data collection work is so, so important to um, our partnership with the Federation. So I went to D.C., and I see there are three worker co-ops or two worker co-ops and one uh, democracy workspace. And I see there's a cleaning company called Dulce Lugar, and I think I've had them on the show, at least the person that helped get them started. It sounds like the same business. And then there's a yoga studio, which I didn't know about in D.C. I went to yoga this morning, uh, and this body needs it. So... <laughs> But the Community Purchasing Alliance, that's the Democratic Workspace, they've been on uh, on oh, the great. show a couple times. Yeah. And that's a, they have a wonderful story. Uh, oh, they're fantastic. Providing yep. purchasing for schools and um, churches is how they got mm-hmm. started, charter yeah. schools and churches. Oh, yeah. Um, and they say they've saved people a lot, a lot of money, those entities. You know, the time goes by real quick. So I've got a sense of democracy at work and what you do in it. I have a sense of who you are, and you born in Japan, grew up in the Bay Area, now live in Portland, and you have this love for how do we have a better world. <laughs> That's my summary. <laughs> <Okay>. That's it. <laughs> you boil it down to my essence. <laughs> You could throw in a little love for Star Trek and maybe some pizza in there, but uh, those are the fundamentals. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, mine was cornbread and beans growing up. We oh. didn't have pizza back then, okay? <laughs> so I know what you're talking about. But this love of creating a better world got you to co-ops when you found out mm-hmm. about them. You said that there were three parts of a sustainable economy, uh, environment, economy, and equity, and it wasn't until you found about the cooperative world for the economy did this make any sense to you. Okay. When we come back, I just want to talk more about the work you do. Okay. okay. And we'll be right back, everybody. Please don't touch that down. News Talk Station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Co-op. You know, we've been on the air now almost nine years. This October will be nine years, and we were only going to do it for 30 days. So I went to Chuck Snyder at the National Cooperative Bank, and as you probably know, he passed away in November. It's a great loss to the co-op world, to the world. And he liked the show, and they've supported it ever since. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, these under-resourced communities we've been talking about, by providing innovative financial and related services. And they've just been a wonderful partner to be in business with, uh, to bring you information about co-ops and the benefits of co-ops, for the individual and for the community. And today, talking about that is Zen Tremholm. He is the Employee Ownership Cities and Policies, Director of Employee Ownership Cities and Policies at Democracy at Work Institute, which is called DAOI. So when we, we've talked about you being born in Japan, growing up in the Bay Area in San Francisco, and working and going to school at Berkeley and now living in Portland. So you've been mainly on that side on that west side west coast yeah. northwest coast and your mother lost a job during the great recession uh, in 2009 and you had all of these ideas about how this whole economy works and so you wanted to study it and by happenstance you learned about it at college and then you went to berkeley to learn more about it and take classes and they didn't have them which is i had no classes in my mba program at all either None of my education that I learned about. I didn't learn about co-ops until I was 55, so you've got to jump on me. Okay, you learn about them. So you can use them perhaps a lot longer in your lifespan to help people and help communities and a better world. So you're going to cities, and you mentioned Atlanta, Georgia, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, mm-hmm. California, Charlotte, 
North Carolina as some of the cities you've been working with. So what do you do when you go into a city or how do you even get into a city to talk about worker co-ops? Yeah, good question. Yeah, let's let's take um, it was actually Durham, North Carolina, not Charlotte. Okay, um, but uh, but Durham, North Carolina, nonetheless. We take that as an example. So, you know, back in I think 2017, the city of Boston was um, part of a program um, at the National League of Cities called the Equitable Economic Development Fellowship to learn how to do like what are some ways we could do economic development with an equity using an equity lens and and strategies that really build equity in our economy. And um, some really great champions at the city were thinking, well, you know, we want to do something around worker cooperatives and employee ownership. What, um, how do we do that? And the National League of Cities, to their credit, um, reached out to a number of organizations who are experts in this work, um, including Dowie, um, to provide some, some, some input on their project as a city. Um, the, you know, the reason why a city would join this program is because top city leadership want to learn new, new tools, new strategies, right, for for addressing the issues that they are committed to addressing in their in communities and they wanted to figure out how, what are the other ways what are the other ways that are working around this country that um we can adopt and adapt and employership was what they focus on and that really uh clicked for for dawi we thought well wait a minute most cities in this country don't know about employership as a tool are unfamiliar with it they don't see it in their community so uh or it's invisibilized they're just not connected to it they don't know what their ESOP is or their worker cooperative is in their community. Um, and the few places that are doing it are kind of, you, you know, at, at that point, we're kind of, you know, not unique cities, you know, like San Francisco or New York City or Madison that have a kind of rich history, rich organizing. There are obviously opportunities that, that catalyze the development of more worker-owned businesses, sure. But I think, you know, we're talking about the tens of thousands, you know, of, of cities, towns, and villages around the country. Most don't really aren't at the size of New York City or don't have the type of history, cooperative history, maybe Madison or San Francisco, what have you. But you know, we believed that if more places learned about worker ownership and we could show how you can, how you can get started supporting it and folding it into um, existing economic development and workforce development programs and priorities, that you can, you can catalyze um, a, uh, you know, a support ecosystem for employership. And employership can be used as a, as a strategy for job retention, business retention, um, reducing the racial wealth gap, you know, creating more strong, small, like uh, resilient small business economies. That's our hypothesis. And so we approached National League of Cities and they, they agreed to work with us on a program that was specific to employee ownership. We called it the Shared Equity and Economic Development Fellowship, or SEED program for short. Shared equity and what? Uh, in economic development. Okay. See. Yeah. That's okay. right. And we, uh, and so with National League of Cities, we reached out to their members, right? their membership association of municipalities around the country, with this offer to join um, a, a year-long program. And so we, we actually went to the mayors to talk about what, what this program would require and what it could how it could benefit the city and its priorities. Um, we explained that this is, you know, you know, employee ownership is this thing, it has all these benefits, but the idea is to bring people together to workshop a project. And if you don't, if you're not familiar with it, you don't have the tools for it, that's okay. Like, we're gonna work with you to start with what you do know, what you do have, and figure out where the pieces to bring into your work that can support employee ownership, right? Employee ownership is, you know, employment business is a business, right? It's like a, a small a business needs certain things in order to be supported and grow, and then an employee-owned business needs certain other things. But you know, if you've got the core stuff, then then you know, then you just you add on kind of the the, the, the special stuff, the special characteristics. Um, there's many ways to do that, and we're at this point in a, as a as a as a movement and as a field where it doesn't matter where you're working in, you can connect to national resources and national you know experts. Who can support whatever whatever you want to develop in your area? We just need to let people mo know more about it. So we went to the city, we invited them to participate in a program, and we work with them to shape a project together. That a very clear issue area they want to address with a very specific racial equity focus. That's our mission, and that's what we wanted to do with communities. So we focus on places like you know that had large demographics of people of color, and particularly in business ownership too. Um, so we went to Atlanta, Durham, Philadelphia, and Miami as our first program. 
And we work with them to, to shape a project and to help them, again, develop a strategy that helps cities be the quarterback, right, for for convening and supporting the, the, the community organizations, the service providers, the capital providers, what have you, in their communities that already are working with business owners and just need more information, more tools to talk to them about employee ownership. Okay, so um, let, let's take Atlanta for a minute. Yeah, please. So, because I want to drill down a little bit to say you go into Atlanta, you talk to the mayor, and then somehow you have to do an assessment to find out what's in Atlanta. What do they have? What do they know about worker co-ops? Okay. Yeah. And I'd rather talk about worker co-ops and ESOPs. They both are ownership, but what I understand the difference is in a is ownership and control that in an ESOP, the employees may own the business or a part of it, but they may not have control over it. In a worker co-op, you have ownership and you have control. And I, I, so I like, I'm wanting the workers to own it and control it. So I'm a little biased, a lot biased toward <laughs> I, Yeah, I mean, ESOPs, there's nothing in the model that doesn't allow for democratic ownership and, and operation. I mean, obviously there's some complexities of, you know, how much is owned and so on. But you can have, you know, uh, worker, worker owned and operated ESOPs. That's, that's, that's definitely doable. And then the, you know, ESOPs create an opportunity to actually create just a, because of the size of business that typically goes and does an ESOP, sometimes it costs a little bit more, right? To, to manage an ESOP plan, you can have major impacts on people's like bottom lines. I mean, really, you know, the data from ESOPs on the creation of assets for workers of color is enormous. It's immense. So I think, you know, I like to think about where are all the tools in a toolbox we can use to address different problems. And, you know, I do worker co-op development. I, I, I also am a, you know, I want, I want the business to be worker-owned. And I want it to be worker-controlled and operated, most definitely. I also want to chip away <laughs> at the racial wealth gap about deep income inequality and just wealth inequities in general. And so I want to figure out just what is the tool that's going to get us that much further towards more people having what they need in order to have good lives. And um, so we're big tents in that approach. And we work very, very strongly with the ESOP community actually on policy advocacy to unlock more resources to support more business owners and workers and organizations that serve both to know about employee ownership is one of the ways that they can, you know, keep, create good jobs. And like that's that's for me is a is really important. It's how we it's how we build power. Okay. Uh, but yes, let's talk about worker cooperatives. <laughs> okay. So, you go to Atlanta. What kind of an auditor do you do? Feasibility study yeah. do you do to figure out what they have in Atlanta and what they might need? Yeah, I love that. So, you know, our program, we, we designed it so that there was, um, and we, we maintain this throughout all the, all the work that we do with cities in this type of cohort model. We have representatives from the city, city leadership that, that you know, are the heads of different departments or they, their portfolio in the mayor's office is focused on equity or economic development or what, what have you. But then we always have a fellow from the community, someone who represents an organization that's, that is working on it kind of from the outside of the city. And oftentimes is going to the city to say, hey, look, this is a thing we should be working on here. This is a priority. Um, and the idea being that the city obviously has some stuff they could do, but they can't do everything. And mm -hmm. they don't know everything. Same, right, with right. the organization right. that is working in the community. Um, and so bringing it together so we can build lasting relationships and partnerships that can grow after, after we leave. I'm not here to parachute in the community, do a flashy thing, and then, and then dip. You know, it's, it's how are we building something for the long term? Right. How can we help support the really the good work that's happening there to then bring in whatever the whatever the thing is that helps what's already the folks who are doing this work in the community just continue to do it and, and do it with, with some support. So, you know, we we have a lot of calls with folks that we know in the ecosystem just to do our, a little bit of our groundwork, you know, school ourselves in a place, understand where the issues, where the communities, you know, some of the political dynamics too that I think are something fundamental in doing work in a place, understanding like what the priorities are of certain certain folks in the process. And then, you know, we do a cursory analysis to understand, you know, what's the business landscape look like? You know, we use some data that's, you know, like public data to just understand, understand that. And then we work with our fellows to really give us a solid snapshot of the city's major industries, where they're located, the demographics ownership. And what we generally find, though, and this was this is actually a, a key learning of ours in our program, was that a lot of cities don't have up-to-date data 
on their small businesses. Okay. To be able to, to yeah, to be able to say, this is my business that's been around for thirty years. You know what we call legacy business, um, and here's where it's located, and what it would mean if that owner sold uh, retired without keeping the business there. Um, and so in many ways, that groundwork that allows us to then do the the targeted work right around employee ownership, which again, if equity is about being very clear about how to target things, right, in a way that that meets, that meets needs where they're at. It's not a blanket approach. It's being very specific. And in order to, uh, and so when we're thinking about partnership as an equity strategy, we need to know what, what we're, who we're targeting, what the impact is. And so um, we've worked with cities to help identify that, like, uh, that data gap um, and, um, and, fig- and, and try to figure out, right, what are ways in which that data can be collected. And so Durham, for example, didn't have this data. They worked with uh, some interns um, to do the first ever small business like survey so that they can then target to do legacy business outreach and support with employee ownership resources. Okay. Durham, Philly, D.C., you've got to come in and figure all of this out and get that data, and then sometimes you have it, sometimes you don't. And we're going to take a break, our final break here already, okay? And when I come back, I really want to bridge the gap between what you find out when you get this data and what you then put in place for these cities or help them to put in place but what the future looks like is where I want to go to, particularly coming out of COVID. So that's what we're talking about when we come back and talk to Zen and let him to give us the information so we can have the power to create worker co-ops. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. Your news talk station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Zen Trimholm is our guest today. He's out in Portland. We've been talking about cities, how Dowie can help cities create more worker co-ops. Then there's the center, the Council of North Carolina is having a camp on June the 20th through the 24th. They're having 110 high school students hmm. coming into a camp to learn about co-ops and cooperation. Oh. Uh, I wish I could get down. If it wasn't COVID, I'd be there to interact with these young people. They'll be doing a business, a t-shirt business, and they'll be owning it and working through some of the things that I'm assuming you will teach people about on how to, <laughs> you said you, you've got a business and there are some things you have to know about a business and that's some of the stuff I learned in the MBA program. And then there are some other things you must learn if you're going to do a worker cooperative business. And so you help cities to know what business they have and help a strategy now, is that strategy starting new ones, doing conversions? What what kind of what do you end up with in the strategy? Yeah, we always start with a problem first, um, and 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 shape the shape the strategy around that. For cities that want to tackle, um, are, are really you know, uh, want to start development in like critical industries that they have, or help support workers in growing industries, but are like also industries that just don't provide really good wages typically. Good benefits, like, like in the care industries, for example, like home care, health, you know, child care, what have you. You know, there's we we would, we would think about doing a startup development approach around that. Um, in Washington D.C., the city wanted to figure out how to create more more access to food that's affordable um, because the food sector is so uh, so strong in D.C. You wanted to help develop um, and support more food. Um, food business development, so to help existing food entrepreneurs grow their business, maybe through a cooperative form, helping new uh, entrepreneurs start businesses, and, and also to address access to foods through, through cooperative grocery stores. Um, they wanted to focus on, they, they were focusing on the, the, the wards in the east of the Anacostia River, Ward 7 and 8 in particular, um, as, a, as, a, you know, as, a, as, well, as a strategy to create more jobs in the food sector and create more access to foods for those communities. And so that was a that was a startup approach. With other cities, it's thinking about preserving what's there and figuring out how to use what's there to then, you know, what I like to what I like to say is uh, feed feed multiple birds with one scone, just <laughs> the turn of phrase. And the idea being that you've got small businesses that are there. If you lose them, that's that's a net that's a, just a net negative all around. Jobs disappear. 
the tax base goes away, the goods and services go away, the, the cultural impact of that business, you know, you know, there's a there's a void, right, where that business was and what it meant for the communities. But if you help transition that business and, and the owner says, oh, yeah, you know what, selling my employees make, can work. And how do I do that? And you help them through that process and they becomes employee owned. Now those jobs are more than just jobs, right? They're ownership stakes. They actually create more, keep, create more money and keep it in the community to circulate for longer. Stop being sold from someone outside. And so the, the community gets stronger. The economy gets stronger and more resilient. And so we always start with what is the city's key pain point that they're struggling to find the solution around. So let me, and we come in. Let me yeah. address that real quick because I see two, you talk about the wealth gap. And the wealth mm-hmm. gap in America, whites own, white families on average own 10 times more wealth than blacks, 171,000. Mm-hmm. This is before COVID, 171,000 yeah. of wealth versus 17,000 of wealth for black families. Anthony Cook, a professor, a law professor who's starting mm-hmm. a center here in D.C., said that in D.C., I haven't seen the numbers, but the wealth gap is 80 times, not 10 times worse. White families have, on average, 80 times more wealth in D.C. than black families. And then if you look in Cleveland, where you have this mm-hmm. evergreen co-op working with institutions that Dowie was a part of, no? We, we weren't a part of that part. Yeah, that was the Democracy Collaborative. Oh, I get you all mixed up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. There's, a, there's a lot of good work happening in the democracy space. Okay. <laughs> we all seem to like that. Okay. That, that word in our names, yeah. So, uh, but the life expectancy of a black man inside Cleveland was a good 10, 12 years less than a white man on these suburbs. Yeah. And so you get life expectancy differences, and you're talking about 10 years. That's huge. Mm-hmm. And then you get money. So I was thinking when you said that the city have their pain points, uh, D.C.'s pain point is this huge yeah. wealth gap. Right. Okay. And like you said, Ward 7 and Ward 8, I live in Ward 7. I've done work in Ward 8. I've, so that's where now the most concentration of blacks are. The gentrification has moved from Georgetown, <laughs> and it's just kept moving over. And I have it that it won't be long before you will not be able to buy a house in Ward 8, okay, because the prices have gone up tremendously, and they'll keep going up. So that, to me, is the pain point. So do you address those pain points? Yeah, and we also recognize that worker ownership is not the panacea. It's not the silver bullet. You know, there are certain situations where a worker cooperative strategy can be a real game changer for, for stopping the loss of businesses or actually creating real opportunities to access work in, to begin with for communities that are, are kind of barred from entering like employment due to discrimination. Like, for, for example, formerly incarcerated people, right? You can create a, a, a business forum that they own and they can take their skills and be able to, to do work through that forum. That's a um, whole nother conversation because I'd like to get into the to, yeah. the to the bakery in Italy that's inside the prison and the prisoners are uh-huh. in the co-op. Right. It's a worker yeah. co-op where it's inside the prison and people on the outside. So when they do leave the prison, yeah. they have a community. They have a job. They know what they're doing. And so the recidivism rate is 3, 3%, not 70% yeah. like it here. So, yeah, there's a whole lot that worker co-ops can do. Yeah, there's a, lot, there's a whole lot. And there's a whole lot that worker co-ops by themselves cannot do. Worker cooperatives have have to be part of a larger revisioning, and this is kind of future orientation stuff that we want to get into, have to be part of a new way of thinking about the future of work and the future of community and how we think about resiliency in our communities and our economy. Worker cooperatives have to sit alongside other forms of shared equity and shared ownership. There's no doubt about it. When we were doing work in San Francisco around uh, legacy business conversions, the, the city wanted to figure out how they could work with their cultural districts. There's a whole program that they fund um, very uh, community groups that represent critical, like, you know, vibrant, like business corridors and communities that, um, you know, like the Japantown cultural district or the LGBTQ Bay culture district, for example. And they want to figure out, okay, how do we, um, we're, we're developing some, some plans around many different issues that these communities are facing. One of them is business and business retention. We want to figure out what's our strategy. And we said, okay, in our process, we're like, well, you know, the city actually knows a heck of a lot about how to do conversions. They're already connected to good uh, organizations doing direct technical assistance for businesses um, uh, around this around this concept. Um, what is what was is the 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 critical issue is commercial space affordability. Okay. If you don't address that, 
it doesn't matter if the business converts, right? The people can't afford to keep work, you know, working there, to keep operating the business there. So that business disappears. And so we need to be thinking holistically, right, about what are the prongs in the strategy that's going to build shared prosperity, build shared equity. See, so of Durham, uh, I love talking about them because I just I love their thinking on this. Worker ownership is just one small part of their broader shared prosperity framework for the city. It's tackling a number of different issues from housing and land to food to, to business, right? And, and worker ownership is a part of that. But I think what we're looking at now is the fact that, you know, through COVID, some of the, the, the critical rot in our economic system was, is further exposed. It's exposed for so many people, but it became even further exposed to people who are not wasn't really exposed to and I think the discourse is shifting. We're seeing how egregious it is, how major corporations and major billionaires continue to benefit it so wholly in the recession, right? And the the fact the fact is, you know, as we as we're thinking about the future the future of our economy, I think we now have the opportunity to contest what that future looks like. And we have a decision to make. We either maintain status quo. And we keep doing things on the marginal side, like little fun alternative stuff, you know, on the edges. Or, and alternative to the what people would say is that, you know, people don't care. Fundamental to the people who do care, right? Worker ownership is always going to meet people's needs. That's mm-hmm. a fact. We know that. But how do we get from, how do we grow? How do we exponentially grow? And I think it's contesting kind of what, um, what are the frameworks as we think about the future of work and the future of what, how people engage in the labor market? What our small business ecosystems look like, what it means to create more community ownership and, sh- and shared equity, and how does that create kind of the foundational resiliency that will be able to weather you know, future downturns moving forward. That will create a foundation, then do deeper organizing for even more resources and supports for for communities, for democracy. And I think I think we're doing that from a policy standpoint all around the country. There's major efforts being you know at the federal level and at state governments down to local governments where champions, lawmakers, agency staff are working with community organizations and service providers and working on businesses to go, right, we know worker ownership should be a part of the mix. How do we make it part of the mix? And I think we're, we're, we have a huge opportunity to organize. Even if you're not starting a worker cooperative, that's okay. Talk about worker cooperative to other people. Advocate for it from a policy standpoint. Um, advocate from a lending standpoint if you're in a, in a CDFI or a, or a bank. There are many ways to support it as one of the things that you help create in your communities. That's the final word, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, we look pleasure. forward to a wonderful future with all the work that you and Dowry are doing. Everybody else out there, we'll be back next Thursday. Please live cooperatively. Your news talk station.